very much looking forward to today's conversation. It's of course about tomorrow's inauguration and the days that follow. Uh, we're very fortunate to have with us James Holman, a reporter at the Washington Post. Um, James, as some of you may know, is Minnesota born and raised, graduated from Apple Valley High School here in Minnesota. He went on to Stanford and joined the Washington Post in 2015 and his first gig following Donald Trump. So he's very well prepared for today's conversation. Big news for James Holman, he will be promoted to being an opinion columnist starting March 1st. That is a tremendous honor to be a columnist, opinion columnist at the Washington Post. So congratulations, James. Thanks, Larry. It's so good to be with you. And uh, I wish we could all be together in Minnesota. That would be a, a lot more fun than having to be apart. But I'm so glad we can have this conversation. And obviously, you know, it's the end of uh, a, a very tumultuous, chaotic four years. And there's a, you know, a lot of crises. Biden talks about the four crises, uh, the coronavirus, the economy, uh, the racial injustice and climate change. But there's obviously a lot of other uh, messes he's inheriting. Uh, at home and abroad, and, uh, and and obviously the heavy security situation in Washington. Let, let's let's start with that. Let's start with yeah. the security situation. As I look at that, and as I've talked with some of my friends who are in the military, you've got a lockdown like we've never seen before. You've got twenty five thousand National Guard who are now streaming into uh, D.C. You've got you know some number around a hundred or more of special forces with expertise in chemical warfare, uh, bomb disposal, and so forth. This doesn't look like the usual precautions for, let's say, protesters. This looks like precautions for a military combat. Yeah, Larry, it really does. And it's, it's sort of amazing. You know, obviously, in Minneapolis, uh, you saw you know, so much of the, the, the uh, protests and the violence over the summer. Uh, and, and D.C. wasn't spared that. Uh, but this is unlike anything I've ever seen uh, during my 13 years in Washington now. Uh, and and it, it, it's an inauguration unlike any other. Uh, it was already going to be totally different because of the coronavirus. Uh, but now, you know, they've shut down the National Mall. Uh, so you can't even go on to the mall. Uh, the, you know, the, the, there's a, a green zone in downtown D.C., which is the same parlance, you know, they used in, in Baghdad. Uh, and there's also a red zone where you're not allowed to go. Uh, our, our office, the newsroom of the Washington Post is actually inside the green zone. So you have to go through several checkpoints. Uh, and, and so it is, it is stressful, but it's also, you know, in, in many ways, understandable uh, coming on the heels of January 6th. And, you so know, it's, it, yeah. Let's talk about that for a second, because, you know, it looks like the FBI is doing uh, what it's been, what it has done for years though Donald Trump tried to fend them off, which is rounding up um, white supremacists and those with a uh, hostility to our constitution. Is this, this level of force um, and the structure of the force and the structure of the embattlements created, is that really necessary for what are probably a few hundred uh, white supremacists uh, trying to come to DC if they do? Well, no, probably not. It's in a lot of it's security theater. I mean, I should what I should tell you is that I'm actually coming to you uh, right now from Wilmington, Delaware. I'm just down the street from Joe Biden, uh, and and he's just down the road. 
uh, and he in in the next few hours this afternoon is going to uh, go to DC. He's going to uh, fly down, and uh, and and what's remarkable is how relatively little security there is here. So I've been in DC, came up here to be in Delaware. He's been putting the finishing touches on his inaugural address. Uh, a lot of his top aides, his high command up here. And I'm actually going to go back down to DC uh, after we finish chatting. Uh, and and it, it's, it's really remarkable how little security there is. And so I think a lot of what that, and he's actually here, he's the one they're supposedly protecting. So I think what that reflects is, is sort of a security theater in a lot of ways, you know, that it's, a, it's a, the overwhelming shore of force. Uh, the way I, I talked to a federal law enforcement official uh, yesterday who said, you know, the, the reason it's so over the top right now in Washington is because no one wants to say no. I think, it, you know, in some ways it's akin to after 9-11. You know, everyone, um, the, 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 the siege or the attempted insurrection, the riot, whatever you want to call January 6th, uh, it's, it's hard to overstate how powerless members of Congress felt. If you think about it, you know, members of Congress are some of the most powerful people in the world. They're used to having everything move at their beck and call. They have a lot of uh, members have security details. And so you literally had hundreds of people who feel kind of impervious, feeling like their lives were in jeopardy, feeling like, you know, kind of a Benghazi like siege was underway uh, and that help wasn't coming. It was a very scary couple hours on the Hill. So I think they would have been very hesitant to have troops, uh, but because it was so personal, I think that's one of the reasons you saw impeachment move so fast. And, and now, you know, their, whatever caution they had about, you know, boots on the ground in the nation's capital has gone away. And so there certainly has been an overreaction. Uh, and it is one of those things where, you know, you, you want to, uh, uh, you know, whatever security thing you ask for, they're going to give you and they're going to deliver. They're pulling out all the stops. When I was driving up Interstate 95 from Washington to Wilmington, uh, Kamala Harris's motorcade was going south on the interstate. So I passed by and uh, it was a massive motorcade. And I've never seen this before, but there were two uh, helicopters with, with you know, guys with assault rifles that were flying at a low altitude above the motorcade uh, just in case you know, there was any kind of problem. Biden was going to go down uh, today on a train. He was going to take the train. That was how he commuted up and down. Uh, but there were concerns the train could be ambushed. You know, and, and so it, it probably would have been fine to do the train. That's how Barack Obama went down. Obama actually picked Biden up right here uh, in Wilmington in 2008 or 2009 on the way down for the inauguration. But again, there's this kind of like overreaction. And so the result of that is that it does change the vibe. Uh, and it, and it, it is, it's unfortunate. I mean, you, you want everyone to be safe and you don't want to be the official who says, no, we don't need that thing. And then something terrible happens, but it's unfortunate that, you know, yesterday, for example, on Martin Luther King day, the, the MLK Memorial in DC was totally closed off and, you know, blocked to the public that people can't go to the MLK Memorial on, on, you know, MLK day. So you have to figure out how to balance that. And one of the questions is, is this the new normal? Uh, you know, are we, uh, next week, is everything going to go back to normal? Uh, and then you're right. It's a couple hundred white supremacists. I do think part of it is the overwhelming force deters people from coming. And so what's going to happen is there's not going to be a, a big presence of protesters or whatever. And so then we'll say, well, that was unnecessary. But what the law enforcement folks would say is, well, they didn't come because we were, we had so many troops on the ground. So these are all the kinds of things we're going to have to grapple with as a, as a democracy. Do you think the, as you've characterized it, the overreaction is partly because of uncertainty about Donald Trump. There have been reports, including from the Washington Post, 
that the FBI is doing background checks on the National Guard. We know on January 6th, during the, the riots and invasion of Congress, that Donald Trump, for about six hours, refused to call in uh, or, you know, military forces to protect Congress. Um, and, and we've had, thanks to a very entrepreneurial reporter at the Washington Post, we know that one of the Trump advisors met with the president a few days ago and the photographer took a picture of the memo that seemed to suggest options for using military force. Do you, so do you think this overreaction is not just the white supremacist, but it's partly uncertainty about the president and whether he's gonna to continue to try to undermine the peaceful transfer of power? Yeah, 100%, I couldn't put it better myself. You know, we didn't, we, obviously there are threats every time. When we had our first African-American president tons of tons of death threats, but a fraction of the security. Uh, there's no question that if if Donald Trump had not spent two months trying to sow doubt, if Donald Trump hadn't met in the Oval Office with Mike Lindell, but also Michael Flynn and Sidney Powell and, and a bunch of other fringe figures who are all telling him to invoke martial law, Rudy Giuliani saying that he's going to be able to overturn the election, really getting his false hopes up. You know, you look at the, that rally that the president had. Uh, if, if Trump had conceded his defeat, I think that, you know, the, a lot of these people wouldn't have come to Washington in the first place. I think he's created a permission structure uh, for, for people to kind of claim the election is illegitimate. I think that it has dangerous results. I think back to that, uh, the speech on December 1st from Gabriel Sterling, who's the, uh, I, the deputy secretary of state in Georgia. And uh, he's a Republican. He was a city councilman uh, in an Atlanta suburb. And he basically said, Mr. President, cut it out. Uh, this rhetoric is is bringing out the crazy in people. All these election workers are getting threatened. People are, you know, trying to get into our election counting offices. And, he, and it's. I actually went back yesterday and watched. It. It's chilling to watch because he says, if you don't cut this out, people are going to get killed. Like these these words have consequences, and it really is chilling to watch that a month and a half later. Uh, so there's no question that the the you know Hillary Clinton. There were a lot of people who felt like Donald Trump illegitimately won four years ago because of Russia or whatever. Uh, but there wasn't a security problem because in part Hillary Clinton conceded and wasn't trying to encourage people to descend on Washington and send a message to the Capitol. Let's move on to the actual plans for tomorrow. There's been tradition going back seven decades or more about how the inauguration happens. The day of it, if you go back to the beginning in the late 18th century, it was just basically a public oath taking. Yeah. But over the last century or so, it's become a lot more. Uh, one of the Trump White House officials described the way in which uh, Donald and Melania Trump are handling the inauguration as abhorrent. You think that's a little strong? Well, it is. I mean, it's, it's sort of Melania Trump released a seven minute farewell video yesterday and, and couldn't even bring herself to, you know, not just say congratulations, but mention Jill Biden or, or anything like that. You know, it, the, the um, you know, there's a lot of, I, I do think, I would say tacky. I think you can objectively say that the response has been tacky or classless. Uh, you know, the, the results have now been certified. The fact that Trump is going to be the first president since Andrew Johnson uh, who snubbed Ulysses S. Grant in 1869 not to go to the inauguration. Do you think that matters? I do. Because, you know, the Washington Post ABC News poll that we put out on Sunday showed that, you know, basically only one in four 
Republicans think that Biden won fair and square. And I think it does make it hard to govern and it does make it hard to lower the volume. Uh, and I do think Trump's refusal to, to kind of have Biden for a, a coffee or whatever sends the message that Trump still doesn't accept his defeat. And, you know, that, that Trump's continuing to even today push that there are irregularities uh, without evidence. And so I, I think it does matter and it does have an impact. It also makes it harder for Republicans of goodwill uh, to sort of, you know, vote to confirm Biden's cabinet nominees, uh, you know, or, or compromise for the good of the country, uh, because a lot of their party, you know, because they've been primed to believe that, thinks that this, you know, that this election was stolen. And so I, I think that that's, it, it's just, it's a very dangerous place to be. Yes, I think um, that's a good point. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, speech that Joe Biden is going to uh, give there's a lot of um, you know, leaks, which is typical at this point, about the themes of unity, bringing the country together, tackling the big problems. Is that what you're hearing as well? Yeah, so that's, so I'm, I'm, you know, I've been trying to do some reporting on that. Uh, you know, and that's um, one of the reasons I'm in Delaware. Uh, and, and I do think that there, there, there's actually gonna be a lot, you know, if, you, if you've been watching Biden speak during the, uh, the conventions during the campaign, uh, you know, his speech the, here in Wilmington the Saturday night when he was declared the winner. I think it's, it's, there's going to be a, a lot of a consistent through line uh, where he's going to be talking about the need for unity, the need to, uh, you know, heal the, uh, that this is a time to turn the page, uh, how we can do anything as Americans when we come together. It's going to be a lot of that kind of thing. Uh, he's been working uh, with you know his his speechwriter and, and one of his longtime advisors, uh, you know they're they're actually trying they're trying to manage expectations to us. You know they're trying to say like Biden's not known for lofty rhetoric and this is going to be a workmanlike speech where he's going to uh, you know he's he's going to focus on on sort of speaking to the four hundred thousand families who have lost someone from the coronavirus and uh, you know kind of nod to the security situation and what happened on January sixth but not kind of dwell on it. Uh, but I, I think Biden is going to sort of try to swing for the fences. Uh, to your point about the kind of the history, you're right that, you know, until 1980, the inauguration wasn't even on the West front of the Capitol with the mall. Uh, and it is weird. So there's going to be about a thousand people in there, there in person when Biden speaks. You know, Biden, because of the pandemic over the last nine months, has gotten a lot of experience speaking to uh, large, empty, you know, spaces. Uh, and and so he's, he's now accustomed to that. Um, but I do think he's going to try to say some things that, you know, he's, for history uh, to capture the moment that can be etched in stone. Uh, so they're, 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 they kind of tease some rhetorical flourishes. But I think, you know, 95% of the speech we could, if we you know, had a whiteboard, we could probably jot out. Uh, and, and it would be remarkably consistent, considering everything that's happened with the racial injustice and reckoning and Me Too and uh, uh, coronavirus and everything that, you know, that's gone on, uh, it, it really was remarkable how consistent Biden's message has been since he announced his campaign two years ago to what it is now. He's just kind of very, very consistently driven the same message. And I think a lot of people think that that's naive. 
uh, you know, that he is, is, is mistaken. A lot of people, a lot of Democrats think that a lot of Republicans and Democrats actually think that it's not on the level that, you know, Biden doesn't actually mean what he says about wanting to reach across the aisle. That that's sort of a, a, a political talking point. Uh, but I do think a lot of Americans take at face value. And I think Biden actually is sincere about that. He, I think he really does want to work with Republicans. Uh, and, he, you know, sometimes he's like Lucy with the football, uh, you know, and, and we'll see how much they want to work with him and how long he sort of humors them. Uh, but, but that's, but I think that that's where Biden's head is at is that he thinks I was in the Senate for 36 years. I can help, you know, break the fever in Washington, even though Barack Obama wasn't able to do it, you know, during his eight years that I was vice president. So let, let's just consider the, um, the question of what is the political purpose of this speech? You know, usually it's to kind of set up, you know, the political direction and the agenda moving forward. And, you know, I'm sure you would agree the prospects of unity are zero. The <laughs> prospects of, you know, bringing the country together, maybe it's 10%. Um, so what's the, what, what is the thinking, do you, do you suppose, behind this idea of leading with unity, knowing that bef before the week's out, we're likely to be in a poisonous impeachment debate. Biden's going to be bringing forward a $1.9 trillion COVID rescue package on top of the $3 trillion already spent that is clearly going to have a partisan war upon it and so forth. I mean, walk us through why that makes sense for Biden to give this kind of speech knowing for certain the kind of response he's about to get? Well, it's a great question, Larry. And I think part of it is that this is just going to be a much bigger audience than he's gotten for any of these other speeches. And, and I do think, you know, what's amazing is even during this transition, Trump has managed to still suck up all the political oxygen. He's the center of attention, even though he's not going to be president tomorrow afternoon. Uh, but he's still, you know, just whether you love him or hate him, he's always in your head. Uh, and, and so I think Biden has this chance there. I think the expectations are kind of almost humorously low for Biden uh, in that post ABC poll I mentioned that we conducted over the weekend. You know, very few people think he's actually going to be able to unite the country. Uh, you know, they, they obviously they right, no, they obviously want him to. But so I think that expectations are low and in some ways that works to his advantage. You know, people don't expectations were so high for Barack Obama. You know, I think back to 12 years ago, everyone was comparing him to the new Abraham Lincoln, uh, you know, this, the new FDR, he obviously had a bigger majority and everything. But so I do think Biden wants to sort of set the stage for being able to lower the temperature. Now, the problem is in some ways, what he's promising the American people depends on Republicans working in good faith. And, you know, oh, there's okay. little evidence that that's going to happen, but I think he's trying to show that he's working in good faith, that he's, you know, that he's, he's making the effort. So I'm, I'm taking a very hardball political um, approach to this because the campaign is over. Yeah. We're now into the Washington DC inside the beltway uh, reality. Um, and I wonder if this speech is aimed at, you know, yes, the rest of the country. Yes. It's his big platform, but also at let's say five to six Republicans who might be, you know, wooed to support uh, Biden and the Democrats on occasion uh, around this idea of unity about handling the problems. Do you think this is, you know, aimed at, at those, that small group? I do. And I, I absolutely do, Larry. I think that that's, you know, I actually don't think that's that cynical. <laughs> you know, I think that that's, um, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. 
um, you know, we, so we, we've talked obviously a lot in the media about since Georgia, how Democrats have a majority, you know, it's 50, 50, you still, I don't think that they're going to be able to get rid of the filibuster, even if they want to on the democratic side. Uh, and you need 60 votes to pass most things. You can use budget reconciliation and some gimmicks for some stuff, but to pass anything big, you need uh, 60 votes. And so that means getting 10 Republicans over. And so there's a couple of usual suspects. There are people who, you know, the Mitt Romneys of the world, you can sort of imagine getting on board with being statesmen. Uh, but, but Biden does need to appeal to those people. I, I was really struck um, just yesterday, the Biden folks had a conference call for us uh, where they announced that Garth Brooks was going to uh, be performing at the inauguration. And they had Garth Brooks come on and, and do this conference call with reporters. And, uh, you know, he's a Republican and he talked about how he's, you know, he still is a proud Republican, but he's going to perform because he wants the country to heal. And he's going to, you know, he talked about the songs he's going to do that will be focused on healing. And, and so th the fact that the Biden folks were messaging that yesterday is exactly a reflection of what you're talking about. This is not about throwing red base to the meat and, you know, or throwing red meat to the base. Uh, this is about trying to play to the middle. And that is Biden's whole political philosophy. He's much more moderate than the party. Uh, you know, and, and he's not, he's not right now thinking about, you know, getting the left happy. I think they think that the left will be happy enough that Trump is, you know, at Mar-a-Lago and not in the white house and that they can then sort of pivot toward the middle. Now that'll change. I think the, the left wants a lot that I think in a lot of people on the left have unrealistic expectations about what they're going to be able to achieve with the 50, 50 Senate. Uh, but for right now, Biden's focus is definitely more toward the middle. I want to talk, uh, hit on a few uh, immediate topics in the first week or so. Um, let's start with cabinet confirmations in the past. Mm -hmm. The president has gotten, you know, some of the national security people, defense, um, and 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 treasury, and a few others. Uh, Trump had two on his inauguration day. I think Obama had half a dozen. Um, Biden's going to have zero. Right. How quickly do you think the Senate will, in reality, move forward to equip uh, President Biden with his his chosen team? So there's a there's it's a super important question and the delay in the transition, the refusal of the, the GSA administrator, Emily Murphy to certify the win, Georgia, January 6th, all of it combined uh, to, to put us in this dangerous situation. You know, the 9-11 commission report said that uh, one of the reasons for 9-11 was that because of the 2000 recount, Bush didn't have his national security team in place when he took office. So there were a lot of reforms after that that were intended to kind of say like, okay, let's, we can fight over some of the more political jobs, but let's get these national security guys in place. Now, there, Republicans are moving in good faith on confirming some of the core national security people. Uh, there's, there's some resistance to Alejandro Mayorkas, the DHS guy, he was the number two at DHS. Some Republicans don't like him because he was involved in creating DACA. Some uh, are angry because of some ties to donor and HB2 visas. Ultimately, he's going to get confirmed, but they're going to make it a little painful. Tony Blinken, who was a longtime Biden aide, uh, the nominee for Secretary of State, he created a consulting firm uh, after he left government last time. He was number two at state under John Kerry. Uh, and he had various foreign clients who he still hasn't really disclosed. Republicans are going to try to make hay of that. Ultimately, though, Republicans I talked to on the Hill expect that these guys will get confirmed in the next week, by the end of the week. Uh, and they're going to be able to 
I think, you know, Janet Yellen, not that that's national security, but uh, she's having her confirmation hearing as we're talking right now. I think she's going to end up getting confirmed tomorrow. Uh, so you'll, you'll have a couple people in place on the, on the secretary of defense. Uh, he's going to have to get a waiver and that's going to have to pass the house probably next week. The impeachment trial complexifies this a little bit just because uh, you know, there, you have to have the trial once they send the articles over. So Nancy Pelosi may hold off on sending the articles until next week or later uh, so that they can get some of these people cleared uh, through. But so I, I think six or seven of the national security people, Avril Haines, the director of national intelligence and other uh, will be confirmed, you know, either tomorrow or by the end of the week. Uh, but still there's a ton of other people that they're going to have to move through and, Biden obviously has this very ambitious agenda. It's, you mentioned the $1.9 trillion plan. He says that he's calling that on top of the three or four trillion we've already spent. He's saying that that's a down payment, that he's going to go speak next month to a joint session of Congress and ask for even more. In, you know, he obviously is, wants to talk about infrastructure and a ton of other stuff. Uh, so I, I'm not sure what will actually get done, but I do think you know the some of the the, the easy ones they'll confirm pretty quickly. Like I think Pete Buttigieg will get confirmed with a bunch of Republican support uh, perhaps by the end of the week. Let's talk a little bit about the filibuster. You sound pretty skeptical it'll happen. I was talking to uh, someone who's very connected on the Hill um, and he said that there's been a group meeting for months on filibuster, ending the filibuster. And the filibuster is a rule in the Senate that requires 60 votes uh, to move legislation. It used to apply to judicial appointments and that was eliminated for federal judges first by Democrats and then the Republicans removed it uh, with regards to Supreme Court uh, nominations. And now the issue is about legislation such as Biden's 1.9 COVID rescue package. And what I was told when I expressed some skepticism is you don't know who the opposition is and the deals that are being cut. Right. Um, and that Manchin and Tester and others are being tempted with deals that would lead them to, to join uh, a bare uh, majority um, that would pass filibuster. Does that sound, you know, possible, plausible? Oh, totally. Yes. Likely? It, I, so I, there's everything you said is completely correct. And there are a lot of negotiations behind the scenes and there are a lot of people who very much want to end the filibuster. There are some of the biggest institutionalists who are against it or are, are, are just leaving, you know, so like Lamar Alexander uh, was an outspoken opponent, Senator from Tennessee, former education secretary, former governor. Uh, he, I think held a lot of Republicans in line against getting rid of the filibuster uh, during the first years of the Trump presidency when they had control of the house and Trump was tweeting every other week that they should get rid of the filibuster. Ultimately, you know, McConnell's against removing the filibuster. That would be a limit on his power. You know, a lot of, um, you, so the, the problem is, you, I mean, you can pass it with a simple majority. So you, you really, you only need 50 votes to get rid of the filibuster. Biden doesn't really want to. Uh, I think he, it just kind of, he doesn't want to be the guy that gets rid of the filibuster. Uh, and so how much political pressure does the White House put against whatever deal might get worked out, you know, where they, they get Manchin by offering him something. Uh, but there are some Republicans who I think would be happy to get rid of it. Uh, it, it the, the, in my time covering Washington, one of the things that's been kind of most remarkable is how much the Senate has become more like the House. Uh, so my first 
my first job covering Congress was covering the House side, you know, and it, and it is, it's just, it's a very rowdy place. Uh, and, you know, it's 435 people. It's uh, it, the seniority obviously matters a great deal. It's a majoritarian institution, but it is very much the people's house. Uh, and the Senate is just different. Uh, and it is, they, they do like the idea that they're kind of the better chamber and, uh, and they kind of hold themselves out as the, you know, the cooling saucer as James Madison called the Senate, but it has changed uh, since I, so I moved from covering the house to covering the Senate. And in that time, you know, the, a lot of house members got elected to the Senate. And there is, and, there is and, the fundamental and, reality facing Biden and uh, he's been around Washington long enough to focus on reality. Yeah. His legislation will not pass. Right. He's not going to get the 1.9. He's not going to get the, the budget using reconciliation to infrastructure and everything else. His agenda will be dead in arrival. And Mitch McConnell will be glad to do what he did to Barack Obama, which right. is tie them in knots and uh, then run the midterm election about the do nothing Democrats. So this seems like one of those moments of of kind of um, real politique in which Biden may stand back and talk about unity but then not object or, or pressure against the filibuster, leave that to uh, the Democrats. Absolutely, Larry, you're totally right. And uh, you know, I know Biden ultimately thinks he's gonna be judged by whether he can get the coronavirus vaccine distributed better and get the economy turned around. And if he believes that the, the filibuster is thwarting him from doing that, I think you're right. He could kind of look the other way and say, well, it's up to Democrats and then kind of give a wink and a nod, uh, you know, to, to, to kind of shake things up. But I do, but there is definitely a lot of, I mean, there's, there's a lot of house people in the Senate now. I do think, and that's a reason also is that there's a lot of people who just kind of want the Senate to sort of be more like the house. And I do think that that is also a factor that could weigh toward getting rid of it. Do you know the rules regarding uh, filibuster? My understanding had been that, um, the Senate adopts on its first session the rules of the Senate. Um, and it's at that point that you would reform the filibuster. And I ask that because, not to give you a quiz about filibuster rules, but just that is there time for Biden to test the waters, confirm that Republicans are going to be obstructionists, and then get behind the filibuster reform? Or does he have to jump on this the first day of the, the new Congress? He does not have to do it the first day of the new Congress. So he, and, and um, I, you know, I was actually, I was watching an interview with Harry Reid on CNN an hour or so ago. And, you know, they were, John King was asking Reid, uh, you know, who, who ended, who went nuclear on a district court judges in 2013. Uh, you know, how long should you give, uh, how long should you, how long should Biden wait before he decides to vote the filibuster? Like two weeks, two months, three weeks, three months. And, uh, and, you know, Reed was like, do it now, blow it up now. Just, you know, you don't waste time, just do it in the, in the organizing resolution. Uh, and that, that is certainly something you hear from a lot of people on the left. Uh, I, I, you know, I remember covering the, you know, they changed the, uh, the nuclear rules for Supreme court. They changed the rules to confirm Supreme court justices for Neil Gorsuch uh, because he didn't have 60 votes. And, you know, they obviously, they, they changed the rules in the middle of a Congress. Uh, they, you know, they changed the rules in December of 2013 for the lower court judges. So there's nothing to stop them from 
changing their own rules anytime they want. And it really is a simple majority vote. Great. Um, impeachment. Why, why, why put the Senate um, into basically a lockdown to do an impeachment trial? Um, the senators are all jurors. This is not one of those situations where when the camera pulls back, there's no one in the chamber. This is an all men and women on deck sort of situation. Why shouldn't Nancy Pelosi just hold it? Well, the, the, the concern about holding it is that you lose momentum. Uh, that, that right now there are a bunch of Republicans who are still very angry about January 6th. Things are still fresh. Uh, but if you hold it 100 days, it sort of looks like it's a political exercise. By then, you know, the tempers will have cooled. Trump will have been gone. There will be things that, you know, the Democratic majority did that will annoy maybe Republicans who might today be willing to vote. Uh, to impeach. And then it kind of shifts back to a mostly party line vote with maybe two or three exceptions. So that's the argument against holding it. And then it's sort of just hanging over everything. Uh, you know, the argument for holding it is like advance your agenda. Most Americans, few Americans would say that their top concern is penalizing Trump. <laughs> you know, the, the overwhelmingly people want the coronavirus vaccine to get distributed. They want the economy to be turned around. You know, the, you know, the dealing with Trump even people who hate Trump, that it's just not a priority. But I do think that there is a desire to marginalize Trump. You know, one of the big questions is how long would the trial last? The last trial was about 20 some days. Would this, you know, in theory, you could have a two day trial uh, and, and dispense pretty quickly. Ironically, it's sort of the reverse of the last trial where Republicans were eager to end it quickly and not have witnesses or subpoena documents. This time, I think Republicans would be happy to drag it out because it sort of prevents Biden from enacting his agenda. And I think Democrats this time would be fine with having no witnesses. Like we saw what happened. Let's just vote on it. Uh, so they're, they're going to end up reaching some kind of middle ground. And uh, ultimately, I think Biden's going to have a very strong incentive to want to turn the page. Uh, but he can't look like he's turning the page too quickly or the kind of people will feel like he's not being tough enough. Uh, you know, this is going to be a this is a, a major early test of Biden. And uh, you know, is, is, what's he? What kind of president is he going to be? Knowing knowing the Senate, do you think there's any possibility that the Senate is going to adopt um, a Biden's recommendation to do a dual track, do the trial in the morning, and then move Biden's controversial legislation in the afternoon? No. <laughs> so you need you would need Republican consent to do that, and Republicans have no incentive to both let Democrats hammer Trump every day and tie Trump around their necks and then kind of like let Biden advance his agenda. So even if McConnell, you know, in, I think McConnell gamed this out very well and in some ways played Democrats. And I think Democrats walked into a trap that McConnell said, and this is going to end up wasting a fair amount of Biden's first hundred days, exactly how much it's unclear you know, it, it's going to be more time we're talking about Trump and not Biden or his agenda, uh, and which Trump's fine with, even though he's going to be angry and lashing out. And, uh, and it'll be interesting to see what kind of defense he puts up. But it's just it's inconceivable to me that McConnell's going to make an agreement that allows Democrats to maximize how effective they can be at the time when they could be most effective. You know, there's a pattern that I've at least observed where Democrats do the right thing and hurt themselves politically. And this seems like one of those instances in which impeachment was the righteous cause. We've never had a president who 
who contributed to an insurrection like Donald Trump. And yet the ability to kind of see the fuller picture and the implications was overwhelmed by that sense of righteousness. Mm-hmm. Republicans don't seem to have as much trouble with that. They can, they can really focus on what do we have to do to move the political agenda and the righteousness part, they'll leave it to, the, to other people. Yeah, and there's certainly some people in the Republican Party who are, you know, the kind of, you know, the, the, there, there are some people who are just kind of McConnell among them, relentless about focusing on what they care about. And in McConnell's case that, you know, has been confirming judges and they can kind of hold their nose and look the other way. And I think this is a case where passions were so inflamed because it was so visceral. They felt so powerless, you know, on January 6th. And they want to do something. And you know, you hear when you talk to a lot of members, even the moderate people who normally, you know, wouldn't want to do this, kind of the feeling was if this isn't an impeachable offense, what is? If you know, if what kind of precedent does it set if you allow this guy to incite a mob and not punish it? And this is the only tool we have to punish it. Uh so it'll it will be it will be interesting to see if that attitude continues when all of a sudden they're sitting as jurors every day, because you can't underestimate one of the key insights about understanding Washington is politicians are people too. There's a feature in us weekly stars. They're just like us. And it's celebrities walking their dogs and getting Starbucks. Politicians are people. They hate sitting around for 15 hours, you know, in, in the chamber watching an impeachment trial. Uh, You know, they get antsy and want to fly home on Friday afternoons and, and so it, it just, it really helps to think of them as people. And, and that's one of the reasons I think that they reacted the way they did to what happened on January 6th, because they're human beings and this is, they were scared and angry. And, uh, and, and I think it's also going to shape how the next couple months play out. So let me ask you about the Republicans who voted not to certify the elections that the states had declared uh, the winner electoral college. You've had you know, about 60 judges, uh, sorry, 60 cases and over 90 judges weigh in, including um, uh, judges appointed by Donald Trump, including the Supreme Court. You've got 140 in the House of Representatives who voted not to certify uh, Joe Biden's Electoral College uh, votes on January 6th. You've got, you know, a handful or more uh, senators. From the perspective of the media, do those actions become a stain on those Republicans? Or is this the kind of thing in a month, six months, a year is kind of forgotten? It's, it's one of the defining questions of the next really 10 years in American politics. And I wish I knew the answer. Uh, what I'd like to tell you is that it is a stain, you know, that this is something that will be remembered and will be defining uh, the truth is a majority of House Republicans voted to reject the results of the election. And, you know, that means a, a lot of people voted not to. Uh, and on the Senate side, a lot of those institutionalists, uh, you know, voted, voted to accept the results. And so I, I have had a lot of back and forth with this about Republicans on both sides of this fight. I actually was talking to a top aide to Josh Hawley on Sunday, you know, and their view is this will blow over in a year uh, Republicans who right now are criticizing us are going to be asking us to come hold fundraisers for them because, you know, we're popular with the base and the base is happy with what we did. Um, and, and maybe they're right. Maybe, you know, that's their calculation. Um, I, you know, I, you know, that they think that Simon and Schuster canceling 
Holly's book deal is ultimately going to be helpful for them because it, you know, plays into the grievance on the right and everything. I, I think it will end up being the sort of defining vote. Certainly I'm going to remember, um, you know, and, and it is just a lot of times people just have such a short attention span. And, you know, a lot of times people lack memory, you know, historical memory can be very brief uh, in, in, especially in politics. And, uh, and, and at a certain point, you know, the, you, it will be interesting to see how it plays in the 2024 primaries uh, and, you know, what, what role does Trump try to run again? Does Don Jr. try to run again? But anyway, I, I think in 10 years, it'll be like, you know, a X member voted to overturn the results of the election. And maybe that's in the 18th paragraph instead of the third paragraph, but it's still sort of going to be a part of any profile of these people is this litmus test. One of the things that Mitch McConnell is concerned about, and one of the reasons he's thinking of voting for impeachment and then to disbar uh, Donald Trump from running again in 2024, is his concern that that there is this group of Republicans and now House members who are quite radical, looking to overturn state electoral college decisions, and he's concerned they're going to primary uh, Republican senators, and there's of course a large number of them up for re-election in 2022. Um, do you think that we're looking at a moment defined by the vote on certifying the results and the reaction of Donald Trump when the Republican party might split? Well, they are split. <laughs> I would split up, I don't think so. I mean, I, I do think, it, I think you really could say uh, there are three parties right now. You know, there's the Democratic party, there's the, the, the Trump party and then there's the Republican party, you know, you could call the Republican establishment, whatever. And, um, and I, I do think that that divide is very real. Uh, ultimately elections are choices and, you know, in 2022 we'll have this backlash inevitably to Biden. It always happens barring something like nine 11. Uh, and, you know, Biden's coalition runs the gamut from, diehard supporters of Bernie Sanders to lots of suburbanites in places like Apple Valley, where I grew up, who voted for Mitt Romney in 2012 and voted for Joe Biden in, in 2020. And so Biden has to hold all those people together. And I think it's when they're, when, if Donald Trump's not on the ballot in two years, uh, it's, it's easy to imagine people who voted for Biden now because they hate Trump, uh, even though they kind of consider themselves center right, being like, yeah, I think it was crazy to challenge the election results two years ago. That was super dumb. Uh, Trump was a disaster, but I'm going to vote for this Republican congressional candidate uh, because, you know, I want to have a check and balance on Joe Biden. So I, I think it's just, that's, you know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this will have an enduring effect. I do think we are going through, and you're an expert on this. Uh, we're going through a political realignment. I really do. And I think we're going to look back, uh, you know, in 2016, Trump's going to be an incredibly consequential one-term president, uh, you know, in, in the sense that, I think he has hastened, he's accelerated the, these long-term trends where, you know, a lot of uh, non-college educated white guys who voted for John Kerry in 2004 uh, and are never going to vote for a Democrat again, you know, and a lot of people who voted for Obama twice. Uh, similarly, I do think that there are a lot of people who had never voted for a Democrat before uh, Biden, maybe hated Hillary Clinton, didn't think she was going to actually lose. Maybe they voted for Hillary 
maybe you know they voted for Biden for the first time. Maybe they didn't vote this time. But the Republican Party is changing in such a way that there are a lot of college-educated, you know, suburban uh, folks who are are going to become Democrats and will now identify as Democrats. And so that, that there's this kind of flip, and we'll see how that plays in political geography terms. You know, is is Iowa and Ohio and eventually Wisconsin, you know, do those states drift more to the Republican party? And then do states like Arizona and Georgia drift more to the democratic party uh, in, in all likelihood, you know, those tectonic plate shifts can be slow and, or, and then it happen rapidly like uh, an earthquake. So anyway, I think those are the, those are the big open questions that, you know, the, the future outwits all our certitudes. Uh, Yogi Berra said, I try not to make predictions, especially about the future. And, you know, after the Trump experience, I'm trying to be careful not to make bold pronouncements, you know, Trump's gone or Trump's changed everything forever. Or, you know, no one, no one has a lock on American political majorities. And so, you know, and even now you can talk about Trump, you know, Trump got 74 million votes and, and it's important that like we in the media and academia don't forget that, you know, that, that Joe Biden got 81 million votes. He won fair and square. He won by the same margin in the electoral college uh, that that Trump won by four years ago, but Donald Trump got more votes than Barack Obama did in either of his elections. Let me, uh, let me, so let I, me I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> let, me, let me put a factor in that you haven't talked about, yeah, and which I would put very high on the list of why things are changing. And I, I agree, we, we're looking at some kind of uh, reconstitution of the political parties. And I do think that Donald Trump is splitting the Republican Party in ways that won't be easily mended. Mm -hmm. um, including the nomination of far-right candidates who will further the very process you're talking about. The element I want to add is race. Um, if you look at the 1980 election, Ronald Reagan um, you know, won. Uh, he won with 55% of the vote, um, and he had a landslide. And the reason for that is that 89% of the electorate was white. Now shoot ahead to today, and um, you know Donald Trump did pretty well with the white vote. But the thing is that the pr proportion of the electorate that's white has now declined to about two thirds. So from ninety percent about to about two thirds, and you can see that playing out in Georgia, in um, certainly in Arizona, um, and and elsewhere. That strikes me as really a fundamental reality. You can see it in the Biden cabinet. This is a remarkably diverse cabinet and lots of different identities, uh, but it is a signal that Joe Biden knows he won because of the vote of black, indigenous and people of color. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, when you talk to democratic strategists as we both do, what they'll tell you, you know, in Georgia, it was sort of like Biden's pollster would say, we need, we need 30% of the white vote, you know, and, and so in, in every state, it's kind of, we need, you know, in Florida, we need 34% of the white vote, you know, and they all, and so like, and sure enough, in the Georgia runoffs, uh, you know, the, the both Democratic candidates got 29% of the white vote, but they won because there was higher turnout among African Americans. That's, you know, it's kind of remarkable to be able to win a Senate race in the deep South with 29% of the white vote. Um, that said, so I totally agree And Biden owes his victory. Biden's debt to the African-American community is, is enormous. Um, demographics are not destiny. 
And I think like we saw that in Texas, uh, where if, if Biden had done as well among Hispanics as Hillary Clinton had done four years ago, he would have won Texas. Uh, but, but Trump made inroads with a lot of Latinos in the Rio Grande Valley uh, and, and a lot of Latinos and you know, working class types in places like uh, Dallas and Phoenix even, um, where, you know, and I've actually talked to lots of Hispanic pollsters and strategists in both parties about this, trying to understand what does this mean? And I actually had a really interesting interview with Marco Rubio about it a couple of weeks ago, because Rubio believes that, you know, this kind of working class Latinos are going to be critical to uh, having Republicans win again and on and on. And, and so part of it was the coronavirus restrictions, uh, you know, that prevented a lot of those folks from being able to work. They were out of a job. They were angry at, at rule, at lockdowns, and there was some backlash there. Some of it, uh, you know, was kind of a, Trump was an attractive figure uh, for, for some of those voters. They kind of, as, as one um, Democratic Hispanic strategist told me, who had done a bunch of focus groups with some of these voters, they really liked his machismo. Uh, and, you know, and, and, and so it will be interesting to see whether Republicans can consolidate some of those gains. And it's sort of wild, you know, it would have been really unpredictable four years ago when you talk about the build the wall rhetoric and, you know, Donald Trump's first speech as a presidential candidate in June 15, 2015 was they're sending rapists and drug dealers and criminals and I semi assume are good people. And then for Trump to, to fare significantly better with Mexican voters in Texas than you know, than he did four years ago. It was sort of stunning, but, uh, but, and, but, but that's the future of politics. Yeah, and, and but Donald Trump stopped talking that language. He did, he did. The general election starting in September, you didn't hear him talking that way and he didn't make a big deal of it precisely because Republicans were seeing opportunities in Texas and Florida mm-hmm. and elsewhere. Let me, let me ask you um, um, uh, <coughs> kind of another set of questions which is about media coverage. Mm -hmm. We've just had a president which the Washington Post um, counted 30,000 false or misleading statements. So here's a president with a track record of not telling the truth, which is beyond dispute. Now you're gonna have a president comes in who will just based on his past, mostly tell the truth and, and practice the usual political skill of of overemphasizing, underemphasizing, twisting uh, rhetoric. Will the media, do you think, have a kind of double standard? Donald Trump was treated one way, which was, is he telling the truth or not? And then Joe Biden is gonna be held to a higher standard about, um, is he telling the truth? Most of the time it'll be yes, but there'll still be that kind of media um, attack dog mode. Does that sound fair or not? Yeah, it's, it's, uh... It's something we have to be mindful of, you know, and, and I'm pro-truth. Uh, and um, I know everyone watching is. It, it's, it's, a, it's a very good question because we've, we've massively expanded our fact-checking operation. So we have, you know, we have like seven in-house fact-checkers now, full-time. We just basically fact-check Trump. And so it, it's a very legitimate question. You know, when, when Biden's making claims, Biden isn't going to kind of like totally disregard the truth or talk about alternative facts or whatever, are, are we going to quibble with small stuff? Um, it is, you know, I, I think it's, it's people, readers want texture and nuance. And, you know, I don't think it's going to be like calling stuff that's 
true, false. Uh, but I do think that it's important not to kind of like be like, oh, you didn't, you know, it's actually 61%, not 63%. And, you know, that, and, and, and so I do think, you know, we have to be careful there. I do think that, you know, there's been a shift toward cynicism generally in political coverage. Um, and, you know, a lot of times tr Trump kind of like sacrificed his credibility very willingly. And so, you know, in some ways he was like the boy who cried wolf. Um, just because he was so willing to, you know, on, on stuff we could see with our own eyes and ears, uh, you know, he'd be like, the sky is not blue. And you're like, I can see the sky. It is blue. So then when he said stuff that wasn't verifiable, either way, you just assumed he was not telling the truth. And it will be interesting to see whether Biden, you know, how hard Biden works to, to keep that, you know, what Jimmy Carter said in 1976, I will not lie to you. Um, you know, I think that there will be, um, you know, or, or has Trump sort of changed the norm now where politicians play more loosey-goosey with facts uh, than they used to? Those are, those are big questions. We'd still kind of have, the jury's out on how Trump is going to change political reporting, but also politics. Let's talk about um, a quick early take on the Trump legacy. He's not even out of office. Yeah. And I know um, there's lots to talk about. Um, it looks like a disaster. He's gotten the first president to be elect impeached for a second time. Unemployment is a third higher than when he entered office. 400,000 Americans are expected to be or are dead uh, because of the coronavirus. Um, we've got um, three quarters um, of Americans, including about half of Republicans, who say that the president bears some responsibility for the attack on Congress. His popularity has fallen dramatically dramatic oh you get the picture it doesn't look good <laughs> what am i leaving out what why is is there a case a kind of like revisionist take on trump that's something other than this was a failed presidency well i mean what so if you're a conservative you know if you point to the judges uh you know you could point to some of the israel peace stuff which i don't think is very sustainable but you could point to some of those things uh you know you could try to paint some picture but it just you know, the, the truth is a lot of presidents leave office kind of unpopular and then have their images rehabilitated later. Dwight Eisenhower left and was viewed as sort of a failed president. In many ways, Harry Truman was too. Even Ronald Reagan, when he left, you know, it was a year after Iran-Contra, uh, you know, the, the, the way Reagan's image was rehabilitated was, was kind of remarkable from 1989 to 2004 when he passed away. Donald Trump is not that. I just, I mean, I would, I, I studied history in college and the big thing I was always hammered with was you can't make any kind of historical judgment about anyone until 30 years have passed. That was always 30 years is the, is when something becomes, goes from current events to history. And, uh, and, and so, you know, it's, you know, in some ways like George W. Bush looks better than he did in 2009 because of Donald Trump, <laughs> you know, the, um, and, you know, all of a sudden like welcoming your successor to the Oval Office becomes a, a classy thing because Trump didn't do it. So we'll see what comes next. Uh, there's just no way between the coronavirus and the uh, racial violence and the, you know, the, uh, the, the credible claims of sexual assault and the lies and the, the it, it is inconceivable to me that history will be kind to Donald Trump. So let's talk a little bit about um, Trump's policies as part of a legacy. And we're running out of time, so we'll yeah. keep it a little shorter. There's a lot that we know uh, Biden right away is going to reverse Paris and, and, and so Keystone. forth. I think yeah. probably they'll make a real run at 
uh, rebuilding the Iranian mm-hmm. agreement because uh, Pres- President-elect Biden's national security advisor was one of the people who put that together. But let me ask you a question, and, and I've been running through the questions from our friends uh, listening. But here's one from Jack Jensen who asked, what Trump policies will Biden continue? That's a good question. Uh, you know, I, I, we did spend $3 trillion. I don't know if you give credit, Jack gives credit to, to Trump for the CARES Act and a lot of the, you know, but, the stuff that's passed, which wasn't say, really. Let's say China. Yeah. Um, there, you know, that's a talking point among some people that, that um, the president deserves credit for challenging China. Of course, you know, I wonder if there's a short memory there because you had three presidents in a row who all made China a central priority um, and including a massive trade deal that the Obama folks had put together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was all based on challenging in an effective way. Right. China, I don't think you could say that, that, that Trump has been effective with his strategies, made a lot of noise and, and done some harm. So what, what policies would you point to and say, yeah, I mean, it's just, it is, it's, it's hard to point to any, you know, I think you're right. Like, you know, the Biden folks would point to TPP as the right way to challenge China, as opposed to the, you know, the, the trade war and the bailouts of the farmers and everything else. Uh, you know, I think like, the, I'm sure there's some stuff that they're going to continue from the kind of the, the public health side of the coronavirus response where, you know, it's Tony Fauci who's making those decisions, not the White House, and they're going to continue, you know, a lot of that kind of thing. Uh, you know, a lot of defense policy stuff, I imagine, will stay pretty similar, uh, you know, with some big exceptions. But, but, but Biden is, even though he's a moderate, even though he's working to try to reach out to Republicans, he represents a pretty dramatic break um, with Trump. And Trump, you know, it, it's important to remember Trump's role, which was that he ran as a bull in the China shop who was going to try to undo the Obama agenda. Um, and so some of it is that he was incredibly successful at undoing a huge amount of what Barack Obama accomplished. And on, you know, whether on healthcare, climate change, a lot of regulations. So yeah. now Biden is going to have to try to repatch a lot of that back yeah. up. I, I think the, the Biden recapturing of the Trump, excuse me, the Biden recapturing of the Obama agenda is clear. Um, I would say, and I'd be curious your, your thoughts about this, that the biggest area where Biden will be borrowing from Trump is that Trump has taken such strong and I think you know, uh, positions with uneven results, it does create bargaining room for Joe Biden. So if you look at China, you know, Biden and his team are set up, I think, for probably a more productive uh, trade deal with China because they, they're willing to walk away from some of what Trump's done, but they're not gonna do it free. And with the Europeans, whether it's on defense or on trade, you know, there are things that the president had raised. I don't think he handled them in an effective manner, but he has created bargaining capital for yes. Biden. And so I would expect in some areas, we're not gonna see a rush to reverse. Instead, we're gonna see a willingness to engage mm-hmm. in diplomatic negotiation to try to capitalize on the Trump positions and then compromise on them for a better deal. Totally agree. Totally agree. And I think that that, you know, there, there was something to be said. Um, you know, I do think sometimes when Trump seemed crazy, he was being kind of crazy like a fox. And he 
Trump did subscribe to the madman theory of foreign policy, which dates to Nixon uh, and Kissinger. And I do think Trump sometimes tried to kind of scare people into thinking he was so crazy to make concessions. And a lot of times it ended up not working as intended. And, um, and you know, you think back to kind of the North Korea brinkmanship, ultimately that did bring the North Koreans arguably to the table, you know, North Korea it appears is going to launch another ballistic missile and kind of become problematic again for Biden now that Trump's gone. But so it, I, I absolutely agree that the, the Biden team will look to take advantage of openings that Trump has created where possible. James, we're, we're out of time. I want to ask you a last question. Yeah. This is from David Etter. And this is what he says. We've been big fans of your daily 202 and the related podcast. We'll miss you when you step down from that role. Can you talk a little bit about what you hope to do with your new role as an opinion columnist? Yes. Uh, th thank you very much for the kind words. Thank you for reading and listening. And uh, I'm excited for the new role. There's a lot I haven't been able to say in my current job, uh, just because I sort of view myself not as a stenographer, but more like an umpire trying to call balls and strikes. Sometimes I don't get it right, but I'm trying to help people understand the game. Uh, I'm not commenting on the rules of the game. And uh, in my new job, I'll be able to express an opinion, you know, and there are things I've had to bite my tongue on the last four years. Uh, but I also will be able to kind of like offer commentary on the rules of the game. Uh, and so, you know, I, I would expect that I'll call out hypocrisy as I see it on both sides, um, you know, and I'll be able to, um, you know, be more forceful in doing so. Uh, but I also will continue to do reporting and talk to people and travel the country and, you know, I'm not just going to be kind of riffing from Washington, D.C., uh, but I, I ultimately want to, to kind of help make the world a better place. And I think I'll be able to do that more from this new, more opinionated role. Well, I, I think that is a, a terrific role for you. One of the things I've really appreciated about your reporting um, has been your non-ideological approach. I think a lot of us are, don't want to you know, read opinion. We want to read what's going on. And, and, and I think you're one of the bright you know, upcoming stars in that area. So I would commend your, your column, not for false, like search for centrism, right. um, but actually for even-handed calling out of hypocrisy um, and also calling out and putting a spotlight on the Democrats and Republicans who are committed to America, to the national interest and to finding workable solutions, not just talking points that have no future. Thank you, Larry. I really appreciate that. That's, that's, what I aspire to do. James Holman, I want to give you the last word. Well, thank you, Larry. Thank you. It's fun to be with fellow Minnesotans. Uh, thanks to everyone for tuning in and for being engaged. Uh, you know, I, I think that the, the proverb is true. May you live in interesting times. The last four years have been like, there was a YouTube video that went viral recently of a woman dumping a bucket of tennis balls in front of her dog. And there are like 25 tennis balls bouncing up and down. And the poor dog is paralyzed because he doesn't know which ball to chase after. That's been my experience during the Trump era. There's just been so much going on. You know, I've tried to kind of connect the dots and make sense of the bigger picture. There's so many crises uh, that, that still exist. Uh, and I think that the story in 2021 um, is, is going to be just incredibly important. Even when Trump's gone, uh, the, there's just so many crises facing our country. And so I hope everyone stays engaged and, and stays tuned.